As we get started today, I'd like you to think back on your academic career, however long ago it was, and think of a course or two that might have had a real impact on your life. Maybe high school or college or some other setting. I'm thinking of a course that shaped your life in some way, your character or your career. One of the most influential courses in my life was a course I took in college entitled Inductive Bible Study. I went to a Christian college and was planning on going into ministry, and this was my first course in the Christian ministry major. Inductive Bible study is a method of studying the Bible, or any subject, by approaching it without any preconceived notions or outside influence, and simply making observations, asking questions, and then drawing conclusions based on those observations and questions. The three steps are observation, what's happening, interpretation, what does it mean, and then application, what difference does it make? The professor was Dr. Joanne Cairns, a no-nonsense teacher with high expectations, a passion for her subject matter, and absolutely no sense of humor. Our only textbook for the class was the Gospel of Mark, about 30 pages in the average Bible, 16 chapters, 678 verses. I know because I poured over every one of those verses. For every class, we had the same simple assignment. Take the next section of the gospel, usually about half a chapter, and come back with at least five observations, three interpretations, and one application. Well, I went rummaging around in my files and actually found my notes from that class. Here's one of those assignments. Notice the red marks. Notice the two plus. That was out of five. I looked through my whole stack of assignments and didn't find one five. But you know what? That course shaped my life in a profound way. The inductive method has been my go-to way of studying and teaching the Bible ever since. By the time that class was done, I was in love, not with Dr. Cairns, but with scripture, with teaching, and with the gospel of Mark. It's been my favorite gospel ever since. Now, it's a fun little PS to that story. Many years later, I was back in that town and visited a local church one Sunday morning. There in the choir loft was Dr. Cairns. As soon as the service was over, I fought my way down to the front and managed to find her in the hallway, still in her choir robe. I quickly introduced myself, told her I was a pastor, and thanked her for the profound influence on my life and ministry. Well, she obviously didn't remember me, <laughs> But she managed a nice-to-see-you-again smile and then hurried off to change out of her robe. Good old Dr. Cairns. <laughs> the point is, I am really happy to be working out of the Gospel of Mark this winter. We're calling it Kingdom Come. And we're spending the first half of the series focusing on the first three chapters, the new things God was doing then and now through Jesus. So we began last week with the opening section of the gospel, which begins with these words. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. We learned that God is the God of new things, new beginnings, and that when God does a new thing, he always prepares the way. And we looked at how he prepared the people of the first century by sending John the Baptist to remind them of their history and point them toward Jesus. And then we talked about how God is preparing us 
for new things here in 2024, individually and as a church. What we didn't talk about is how we're supposed to prepare for those new things. I think we all like the idea that new and better things can be ahead of us, but what can we be doing to get ready for those new things? So with that question in mind, let's dive into the next section of chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. Uh, let's read the whole passage so we get a feel for what's happening, and then we'll come back and take a closer look. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. One of the reasons this is my favorite gospel is that Mark is a great storyteller. Someone has defined a story as any piece of writing that makes the reader ask, what's going to happen next? And that's how it is with Mark's gospel. As you probably noticed, he moves quickly from one moment or event to another, stringing them together in such a way that, that makes you want to keep reading. He doesn't offer a lot of commentary along the way like the other Gospels. He lets the story carry the freight and invites us to come to our own conclusions. That's why it's perfect for the inductive method. So let's practice that method today. Let's work our way through the passage, making some observations, asking questions as we go, and then I'll offer some interpretations and an application. Now, we're going to spend a big chunk of time in the Scripture up front. But I promise you, we'll get very practical by the time we're done. In fact, we're going to get so practical, you may wish we never got to application. So, the section begins with the words, at that time. Now, that expression, at that time, was a storyteller's idiom. Kind of like our once upon a time. It sets the story in motion, tells us something interesting or important is about to happen. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, if you were to flip to one of the maps in the back of your Bible, or if you Google Land of Jesus, uh, you'll see that Nazareth is a long way from where John was baptizing in the Jordan. As we learned last week, most of the people being baptized were coming from Jerusalem and the surrounding regions. So who is this stranger coming all the way down from the boondocks of Galilee? At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just like that. No explanation of who Jesus is, how John handled it, or why he's being baptized. It just happens, Mark tells us. And then... As Jesus was coming up out of the water. Now, we lose a little something in translation here. In the original Greek language, John uses a word here that means immediately. As in, immediately Jesus came up out of the water. And it turns out that immediately 
is one of Mark's favorite words when describing the life and ministry of Jesus. He's going to use it 11 times in just these first few chapters. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. That expression, torn open, is a dramatic, almost violent expression. It describes ripping something apart in a way that it can't be put back together. Remember the thin places we talked about on Christmas Eve? Those times and places when the spiritual and material realms come so close that heaven actually breaks through? Well, this, it turns out, was a thin place. And that expression, torn open, would have been especially powerful for Mark's Jewish readers because they'd remember the prophets pleading with God to rend the heavens and come down to put things right in the world. Is that what was happening here? As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, interestingly, this is the only time in the Scripture that the Spirit is compared to a dove. But was there actually a dove? Or did the Spirit just come like a dove? Mark doesn't tell us, really. He just wants us to know that the Spirit that settles on Jesus comes like a dove, gently, gracefully, rather than like a hawk or an eagle with its talons flashing. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Notice the voice speaks directly to Jesus. You are my son, as if this moment was meant just for him. But, but what does it mean exactly that, that this stranger from Nazareth of all places is God's son? Now, that expression was, was sometimes used in the scriptures to describe the king, but, but Jesus certainly didn't look or act like a king. And notice how intimate the relationship is between this heavenly voice and this earthly son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, we can't really tell from Mark's account whether the whole crowd saw the dove and heard the voice or, or just Jesus. But Mark wants his readers to know what happened and what was said, even though he never explains any of it. In characteristic style, he just moves on to the next event, verse 12. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Once again, Mark uses that word immediately. The water is still dripping from Jesus' beard, practically, and the Spirit sends him out into the desert. Now again, Mark's Jewish audience would know that the desert so it was a lonely and difficult place, dangerous evening, fit only for wild animals. And yet the Spirit sends him there, knowing that Satan is also there, the enemy of God's people. As if this is some kind of test and an initiation almost for Jesus. And interestingly, Mark tells us nothing about what actually happened there. He doesn't even tell us that Jesus passed the test. 
Is he, is he keeping us in suspense? Or, or is he suggesting that the temptations didn't end there in the desert? Mark doesn't really tell us. But whoever this Jesus is, he has angels watching out for him. And then, abruptly, Mark changes the scene again. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. See what I mean about the pace of Mark's gospel? He practically rushes from one event to another. He doesn't tell us why John was put in prison or how Jesus felt about it, but clearly that event was a signal for Jesus to begin his work. But notice where he begins his work, back in Galilee. And for some reason, he chooses to begin his ministry there rather than in Judea near Jerusalem. And the first thing Jesus does is to preach, proclaiming the good news of God. Now, we pointed out last week that the phrase good news was a cultural idiom for the announcement of some important event. But this announcement doesn't come from a Roman governor or even Caesar. It comes from God himself. And the announcement Jesus makes is this. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Now, we said that Mark is a great storyteller, so he chooses his words very carefully. And when he says the time has come, he uses a Greek word that means critical moment, turning point almost. He says it as if it's the most critical moment in all of human history. And when Jesus spoke those words, the kingdom of God, his readers would immediately have imagined the time they'd been waiting for for centuries, a time when God would establish his rule on earth, when he would put right everything that was wrong with the world, when he would make Jerusalem a holy city once again, when nations would no longer take up arms against each other, when the lion would lie down with the lamb and all of creation would surrender to the rule of God. It was the best possible news they could have imagined. But then Jesus said a strange thing, a less wonderful and welcome thing. Repent, he said, and believe the good news. Repent? Why? They were the chosen people. They had the law, they had the covenant, they had the temple. Repentance was for Gentiles, for pagans, not for sons and daughters of Abraham. Repentance was for sinners, tax collectors, and drunkards, prostitutes, and the like. But they were the good guys. What did they have to repent of? Interestingly, Jesus doesn't tell them yet. All he tells them is to believe, trust, embrace the good news of God. And that's it. That's all Mark tells us. And in verse 16, Jesus is on the move again, as we'll find out next week. So, oh, we've made quite a few observations. We, we've raised quite a few questions. And if Mark and I have done our jobs right, you can't wait to see what's going to happen next. But, but what does all this mean for us today? Well, let's shift gears a little bit and 
try to draw some conclusions from what we've observed. So I'm going to offer some interpretations and and some application. (laughs) And the first interpretation or teaching point that comes to mind is that something new and climactic was happening and still is. Something new and climactic was happening and still is. Everything about these opening verses has a sense of movement to it. At that time, immediately after this, Jesus travels from Galilee to the Jordan River to the desert and back to Galilee, all in the space of about six verses. Mark wants us to sense the excitement, the urgency, the energy of what's happening. The critical moment has arrived, he tells us. And this thing that was happening was new. It was different from anything that had happened before, different from anything that people were expecting. It was happening in the wilderness, not the city. It was happening in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. It had nothing to do with going to the temple and offering sacrifices, but instead involved taking a public bath in the muddy waters of the Jordan. And the stranger from nowhere that John was so excited about didn't look anything like the warrior king they were expecting. So this thing that was happening was new, but it was grounded in the past. The symbolism of all this would not have been lost on the imaginations of the people. The desert, the wilderness, was where their ancestors had received the law and become children of the covenant. The Jordan River was what their ancestors had passed through on their way into the promised land. The kingdom Jesus spoke of was something their people had been dreaming about ever since the glory days of King David. So this thing that was happening wasn't just new. It was climactic. It was a fulfillment of long-made promises and deeply held dreams. And it still is. Notice how Jesus put it. The kingdom of God is near. Or more literally, is at hand. Which could mean it had arrived, or it had almost arrived, or maybe both. Because as we're going to find out, the kingdom wouldn't arrive all at once. It was already, but not yet, as we learned a couple weeks ago. Jesus would announce this kingdom, he would inaugurate it, but then he would leave and let it grow all by itself, as one parable puts it. And so that climactic thing that began with Jesus is still happening right up to this present day as one person after another surrenders to the rule of God. So you and I can be part of it. The second conclusion we can draw from this is is that Jesus was at the center of this new thing and still is. Jesus was at the center of this new thing and still is. As intriguing a character as John the baptizer is, Mark quickly turns the spotlight on Jesus. And with just a few words and images, he lets us know that this man from Galilee is unlike anyone the world has ever seen or known. When he's baptized, heaven is torn open. A dove or something like a dove settles on him. A voice declares him to be the beloved son of God. 
Then he goes off to the desert to go one-on-one -on -one with the devil himself. Whatever happens there, he emerges triumphant, steps into the public arena, and announces nothing less than the birth of a new world order. Mark wants us to know that whatever this new thing is going to look like, Jesus is going to be at the center of it. And he still is. Even though it's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked the earth, he continues to be the most compelling figure in all of human history. No human being has shaped life on this planet or changed the destiny of more human beings than Jesus of Nazareth. The church he founded is the largest, most global spiritual movement on earth. The eternal destiny of every human being hangs on his life, death, and resurrection. Whatever new thing God wants to do in your life or your church, Jesus is at the center of it. Uh, the third conclusion we can draw is that participation in the new thing required repentance and still does. It required repentance and it still does. Repent, Jesus said, and believe the good news. That word repent means to turn. It can mean to turn from or to turn toward or to turn around or all of the above. It means to turn. As we said, repentance wasn't something Jesus' listeners were used to doing. I mean, what were they supposed to repent from? Well, in the days and chapters to come, they're going to find out. Things like greed and envy and lust and neglecting the poor and ignoring their neighbors and, and hating their enemies. All the sins that were ruining their relationships with God and each other. But it wasn't just their sins they were needing to repent of. They needed to turn from their wrong-headed ways of relating to God. Their legalism, their hypocrisy, their self-righteous infatuation with their customs and institutions. The new thing God was doing, the new kingdom he was bringing, called for repentance. And it still does. Last week, I asked you to consider what new things you wanted to do or be in the year to come. And what are we hoping God will do in our lives and homes and church? Well, according to Mark, according to Jesus, those new things can't happen until we repent, until we turn from old and hurtful ways to new and better ways of living and being. But like Jesus' first listeners, we're not crazy about repentance either. What do we need to repent of these thousands of years later? Well, chances are some of the same sins the first hearers needed to repent of. In fact, somewhere along the way, the church came up with a list of them. Pride, greed, lust, envy, anger gluttony, and sloth. The seven deadly sins, we call them. 
because they rob us and others of the lives we were meant to live. They're they're all pretty self-explanatory, so I won't take time to define them. But I'm guessing we can all point to one or two that are getting in the way of the new and better things we're hoping for this year. And, And if you're serious about repenting of them, I'll encourage you to check out Celebrate Recovery which specializes in things like this. It begins a new season on January 22nd, next Monday. But I don't think Jesus was just calling out people's personal sins here. I think he was calling out corporate sins, things we need to turn from as the people of God, as the community of faith. What sins might be getting in the way of the new things God wants to do in the church at large, and at Grace Chapel in particular. Well, I gave that some thought this week, and three things came to mind. I'll toss them out, and you can decide if the sin fits or not. The first one that came to mind was racism. I suppose it came to mind in part because it's Martin Luther King weekend, but it also came to mind because hardly a week goes by that we aren't reminded in some way of our human tendencies to stereotype, to overlook, to discriminate against, to other eyes, people who are different from us. It's been called America's original sin, and with some good reason. So however guilty you may think you or we are of it, I think we can all agree we need to repent of it. We need to turn from it if we want to live in the kingdom Jesus came to bring. And while we're at it, we can repent of sexism and ageism and classism and and all the other isms that value one people group, our people group, over another. Let's turn from all that and let's turn toward justice and reconciliation and equity and inclusion whenever possible. Now, we've been leaning into this in recent years and, and And I think we're a better church for it. But let's continue to do that. Because the future of the church, I believe, is multicultural, multi-generational, and multi-just about everything you can think of. And if you're serious about that, you can check out some of our racial justice resources on our website at grace.org slash JRL Perspectives. Well, like I said, You may be wishing I never got to application, (laughs) but that's where inductive Bible study leads, so let's keep going. A second thing we might need to repent of as people of faith is consumerism. And by that, I mean consumer Christianity, which I know is a bit of a cliche, but but we all get it. Consumerism approaches faith, and, and church in particular, from a transactional basis. What do I get out of it? How does it fit into all the other activities of my life, including Sunday mornings? How much or how little do I actually have to do to be part of this new thing? Our level of engagement is driven more by comfort and convenience than by commitment. Uh, We hear a lot these days about the decline in church attendance and engagement, especially post-COVID. But do you know the age group demographic that has been least likely to return to church? Boomers 
the 55 plus crowd. And do you know the group most likely to return to church? Millennials in their 30s and early 40s. And we've actually seen that happening here at Grace. So it's not all bad news. In fact, they're telling us that Gen Z in their teens and 20s are looking for a radical, all-in kind of faith experience. So as we look to the future of the church, and to Grace Chapel's next chapter, it's worth asking ourselves what it might look like to repent, to turn from consumerism and toward commitment. I don't know what that might look like, but if online is the best way for you to engage with church right now, then lean into it. Focus on the Sunday experience. Don't try to multitask. Take advantage of the many ways to connect digitally. Scan that QR code. Let us know you're here. Join a group. Take a class. Explore membership. Lean into it. But if online is just a convenient option that you've comfortably gotten used to, maybe it's time to get engaged in person again. So racism, consumerism, can you handle one more? I had to think harder about this one. How about self-righteousness? I looked it up and the shoe fit. Self-righteous, having a certainty, especially an unfounded one, that one is totally correct or morally superior. Doesn't sound like a very attractive quality, does it? But religious people are especially prone to it. And, and it's how we're perceived by the world around us these days. <laughs> and the thing about self-righteousness is, the more you deny it, the more likely it is to be true of you. So maybe we need to repent of it. To turn from certainty and superiority and the need to be right all the time and turn toward humility and teachability and grace. Doesn't that sound like a new and better way to be the church? Doesn't that sound more like the stranger from Nazareth who humbled himself in the waters of baptism, whose spirit was as gentle as a dove, and who came bringing good news to people who needed it most? <laughs> if you're serious about that one, you can check out any of our discipleship journey resources at grace.org slash JRL. If you look under the Perspectives tab, we have one called Getting Restarted and another called Who is Jesus? And you see, that's the best thing about the repentance Jesus was calling for. It wasn't just about turning from sin. It was about turning toward Him. Repent and believe the good news, he said. He was the good news. He was the new thing God was doing, and he still is. And we talked last week about how many New Year's resolutions fail. I didn't want to tell you how many, but a bunch of you have asked. They say that about 10% of New Year's resolutions make it to February. That may be because when, when you make a resolution, all you do is turn from one thing to another thing. But when you repent, 
you don't just turn to another thing, you turn to another king. See what I did there? You don't just turn from another to another thing, you turn to another king. But seriously, resolutions are all about our desire and our ability to do something new. Repentance is about God's desire and God's ability to do something new. And he does it through faith in his son, Jesus, who he loves and with whom he is well pleased. And if you're serious about turning to Jesus, you might want to check out the Alpha Course, beginning online, Thursday, January 25th. Now, I told you at the beginning how impactful that inductive Bible story course was. But I didn't tell you the best part. It wasn't just that I fell in love with Scripture and with teaching and with the Gospel of Mark. I actually fell in love with Jesus. Following Jesus, step by step, word by word, through the Gospel of Mark, the Jesus I had known since I was a child became more real and personal and compelling than I had ever imagined. And I trust that you'll have a similar experience as we continue our way through Mark's Gospel this winter. But as we finish up today, Let me give you a quiet moment or two to ask yourself and the Spirit if there's something you need to repent of as you and we head into this new year. Maybe it's something we mentioned. Maybe it's just something the Lord brings to your mind. Just take a moment. Name it if you can. And and then I'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for this gospel you've preserved for us, the gospel of Mark, for the opportunity to spend time with it and with each other and with you today. Thank you for the kingdom you brought and are still bringing. Thank you for the invitation to be part of it. Forgive us, Lord, for whatever sins you might have brought to our minds today and free us from them as we turn to you and to the new and better things you have in store. In Jesus' name, amen.